Through the Innovation Station Road Trip Series, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues and Intergovernmental Affairs Team at the U.S. Department of State are facilitating conversations between women innovators, local governments, and other community leaders. Their discussions illuminate persistent challenges while brainstorming opportunities and strategies for collaborative action. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. As my colleague Shakira noted, my name is Aubrey Paris, and I lead the Innovation Station Initiative in the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues here at the U.S. Department of State. I'm pleased to be your moderator for the first of our two panel discussions today. So when my colleagues and I were considering challenges of great importance to Texas, as well as myriad other locations around the world, water security was perhaps unsurprisingly the first that came to mind. I mean, as communities contend with the worsening impacts of climate change, their ability to access safe and clean water in adequate quantities, you know, the whole definition of water security, it's becoming increasingly difficult. And while many think of extreme heat and drought and other conditions that make water scarce, storm surge, flooding, and other inundation events can also jeopardize water supplies. Sometimes these seemingly opposite impacts even afflict the very same community. What some, I think, are, are less likely to realize is that in many parts of the world, water is, as Georgie noted just a few moments ago, a women's issue. Women and girls are often responsible, just as Georgie was, for collecting water for their families. And their overrepresentation in domestic work, uh, domestic care work, makes them additionally reliant on this increasingly scarce natural resource. And as that water scarcity increases, women and girls face exacerbated challenges related to gender-based violence, education, livelihoods, and so much more. Now, in this session, we'll hear from four leaders helping domestic and international communities advance water security. So, without further ado, please join me in welcoming our panelists for this session, Andy Brown, the judge of Travis County, Texas. Ashley Turney, Chief Innovation and Experience Officer in the Office of the City Manager for Reno, Nevada. Kate Mingoya, National Director of Climate Resilience and Land Use at Groundwork USA. And Sydney Gray, Founding Director of Mama Maji. Thank you all for joining us. We are very grateful to have you with us today. Uh, we're going to begin this session by inviting each panelist to briefly overview their work related to water security, and then we'll, we'll transition this into Q&A. So, again, we're going to start with very brief introductions, and I'm going to turn to Judge Brown first. Welcome, Judge Brown. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so just to clear up a little thing, uh, even though my title is judge, it's not a courtroom kind of judge. It, instead, it's sort of like mayor of Travis County, which is where Austin is. Um, I preside over the Travis County Commissioner's Court. We oversee the county's annual $1.4 billion budget and set policies for the county. I also act as the county's chief administrator. And in times of disaster, you know, floods, fires, plagues, uh, COVID, things like that. I'm the director of emergency management for the county. And so since taking office about two years ago, I've focused on increasing access to health services across the county, expanding affordable housing and economic equity across the county, and fighting climate change. In Travis County, we really had a front row seat to when Texas froze 
during winter storm Yuri, which devastated many in our community. And we've experienced a lot of drought conditions since then, and, and frankly, before then, as a, and as a result, a lot of wildfires. At the same time, we're the second fastest growing community in the country, and we have more people coming each day here to Austin and Travis County. And it, frankly, it's putting a strain on our infrastructure. So as we build the Travis County that we need it to be, to be resilient and responsive and safe, we really have to prioritize access to water and basic infrastructure. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ashley, welcome, I'll turn to you. Thanks so much for having me. And Aubrey, I appreciate you pronouncing Nevada correctly, uh, especially on today, which is our observation of Nevada Day, which is actually a state holiday for us. Um, my name is Ashley Turney. I am the Chief Innovation and Experience Officer. And under Mayor Sheevy's leadership, we created my role in order to ensure that we are providing the most effective and efficient service delivery for our residents. And our focus has really been identifying ways to leverage technology and identify, as we know in government, what is a target-rich environment for improvement. And so that is the, the crux of what I'm here to do is ensure that we are really working to make a community that our people are proud to call home. Thank you so much, Ashley, and for joining us on this holiday. We're, we're even more grateful to have you. Um, with that, I'll turn to, to Kate. Kate, it's great to see you today. Great to see you. Thank you for having me here. My name is Kate Mangoya Lafortune, and I am the National Director of Climate Resilience and Land Use. And I work with Groundwork USA, which is the national capacity, capacity building organization for 20 people-centered environmental justice organizations across the country. So everywhere from San Diego to Richmond, California to Richmond, Virginia, we have organizations that are working with grassroots communities to help them deal with the issues that are creeping up as part of the climate crisis. Everything from combined sewer overflows which dumps stormwater and sewage into people's homes um, to flash flooding in the Choyos Creek watershed that wipes away patio furniture and cars um, to dealing with droughts that make it that, so that folks are uh, continually to be food insecure. If they were growing food at home, they've uh, have sort of a higher bill for being able to, to deal with that. So we work with putting residents in the driver's seat to make changes to their built environment so they're safer from the climate crisis. Wonderful. All very relevant to today's conversation. And last but certainly not least, I'll turn it to you, Sydney. Hello, uh, my name is Sydney Gray. I am the founding director of Mamaji. Uh, we aim to empower women to change their world through water. Uh, we have worked with women across a number of countries, including the United States, Pakistan, Uganda, South Sudan, Zimbabwe, and Tanzania, and Kenya. Over the last decade, we have worked with over 700 women, particularly in Kenya, to build businesses and provide water and sanitation solutions in their communities. 300 of these women have become what we call Maji Mamas, and they themselves have trained 25,000 plus people in critical water issues and have provided 37,000 people with clean water. There's some big numbers, Sydney. Very exciting. Thank you I so much. I just did the math again. Did you? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> we love math, especially when it tells us uh, that we're having an impact, right? Um, which I think really leads me to my first question that I'd like to ask everyone here to, to weigh in on as a context-setting question um, before we dive into some more specifics. You know, Sydney, those numbers that you mentioned really demonstrate impact, impact related to a particular challenge. And so my question for everyone here today, and perhaps we can go in reverse order this time, 
How are water security concerns affecting the communities with which you work? And since you all work in very different communities, I'm very curious to hear uh, the what I expect to be some diversity of answers, but maybe some commonalities that we wouldn't necessarily expect as well. So again, Sydney, I'm going to turn it back to you to start. So we've been doing this work for about a decade, but the last four years we've been hyper-focused uh, in southern Kenya, working specifically with Maasai women. Um, the Maasai are among the indigenous communities on the forefront of climate change and the effects of it. Um, Kenya used to have very regular rainfall uh, with the long and short rains running like clockwork every year. Um, you could literally time everything to them. Um, but now the Maasai particularly are facing long periods of droughts that are interrupted by short periods of intense flooding, both of which devastate their lives and their livelihoods in different ways. So during the periods of drought, we will see water access drop, obviously, but food costs rise. Um, the first to suffer are the girls who are last in line for both food and water. We see deaths of girls going up behind, um, and then because they're behind both the boys and the animals and then also the parents. The Maasai store a lot of wealth in their herds as well, so when the cattle start to die off, the community itself starts to become even more impoverished than the low income they are already at. And this has predictable knock-on effects, right? This includes the decreased schooling rates for girls, increased child marriages, increased violence community-wide, widespread famine. We're seeing a lot of famine issues. And while the floods, the intense periods of flooding bring relief to some of that, like now there's not as much water, like the cattle aren't dying off as much, um, but there's significant infrastructure damage and loss of life, um, followed by a sharp increase in waterborne diseases because the water is now everywhere and is mi mixing with a lot of things that it, it shouldn't. Um, so those are some of the most immediate impacts that we're seeing specifically in southern Kenya. Thank you so much, Sydney. There definitely uh, concerning on multiple levels. Um, and going from the international context, let's shift back domestically here uh, for the moment and I'll turn I'll turn back to Kate. Some of the water security concerns affecting the communities with which you work. So the communities that we work in are predominantly low income communities of color. The cities we work in are traditionally about the second or third largest city in any particular state. And flooding is a, is a huge concern that we speak with residents about all the time. Um, flooding causes everything from disrupting people's routes to work or their kids' routes to school, uh, to flooding basement, causing molds to bloom in the drywall and ruining materials that are really hard for low-income families to replace, um, all the way to creating uh, a perfect breeding space for mosquitoes and waterborne illnesses. We see that more and more in our communities in New Orleans, uh, where things like dengue and malaria, diseases that you just don't think are part of the American experience, um, are starting to become more frequent. Um, so dealing with water management, um, both the constant onslaught of water in places like Rhode Island and in Richmond, Virginia, um, but also places that go through periods of drought followed by flash flooding and, and sort of dealing with the, the infrastructure consequences, the health consequences, and the social and political consequences of that. Interesting. We already see some overlap in, in some very different communities, which I, I suspect it might have happened, but had no idea we'd illuminate them so quickly. Uh, so let's turn back now to Ashley. Staying in that vein of consistent ideas and themes, uh, one thing to note is that Reno has always been a boom town, and we are consistently proving that to be the case. Uh, we are now considered a mid-sized city, and we have seen a very large increase in our population, uh, nearly 20% since the last census. 
And part of that is due in part to tech companies coming in, which that growth is welcomed. Uh, we do have Tesla in our backyard, but it is something to note that with that increase comes the physical taxing of our infrastructure and largely our wastewater is something that is a really unique situation uh, in Reno is that our drinking water comes from our river and then wastewater is then cleaned and put back into that river. Uh, so we're seeing that physical infrastructure of deferred maintenance, obviously through the recession, there was just not enough funds to go around in order to upkeep these multi-multi-million dollar functions a year. Additionally, with the consistent thread is climate change. That is truly impacting our ability to provide services in the most effective way. Uh, Reno is positioned in an interesting place from a geography standpoint. We are a desert, but we are known as a high desert, which means it's a desert at 5,000 feet elevation, and we are in a closed basin, which means we are a bowl with no bottom that empties. And so when it rains, we oscillate between massive drought for hundreds of days with no precipitation to an onslaught of water in which creates incredible damage from a flooding standpoint. And then also storm water will then trickle into and cause issues with our wastewater systems. Thank you, Ashley. And Judge Brown, I saw you nodding a bit along with that part of the conversation. So I'll turn it back over to you. Yeah, interesting. We both have Tesla gigafactories, I think, at least in, in our case, definitely driving a lot of growth here. Um, so uh, I guess, let's see, there's so many people moving here. It sounds like similar deal with, with Reno that it, it's not expected to slow anytime soon. So we have a Tesla gigafactory. We have Samsung that's expanding their footprint uh, significantly. Still a lot of growth, even compared to the rest of Texas and the rest of the country. About 1.3 million people that live in the county in Travis County right now, and estimates are that by 2030, we could have a million new residents here. And so that's a million people to keep hydrated, uh, potentially, you know, if we keep going the same way we are now with lawns to, to water, toilets to flush, I think you kind of get the idea. This summer, though, Austin and Travis County, we went 51 days without any measurable rain in the in here, which is unusual. Uh, from when I grew up in Austin, at least. That was the eighth longest stretch of consecutive days without any measurable precipitation here in Austin. Uh, also, this summer was the second hottest day, hottest summer in recorded history. We record that at Camp Mabry, which is sort of located in the middle of Austin and Travis County, and that's that's where we take those records. So not only did it barely rain this summer, but it was also super hot and people were sweating it out because of the high temperatures that were unusual for our area. These arid weather conditions are shifting east in a trend that really concerns us. And the state climatologist observations suggest that these drought conditions could become more permanent here in Austin. And if they do, that obviously could have a disastrous effect to our community, to our environment, to our economy and everything. We get a lot of our water from the Highland Lakes um, and flows into the Highland Lakes are continually dropping. And so if that trend continues, it could impact the number of people who could live here. And so that's really our biggest water safety concern for the community. It's already a problem each summer, but usually it rains a whole lot. But if it gets worse, it could be a real disaster if we don't make some changes. And so um, we're already beginning to see what happens if drought conditions worsen in Texas. There's places along the Rio Grande Valley and South Texas that have already seen water shortage concerns. 
Um, our neighbor to the south, Monterey, Mexico, which is, I don't know, about a four hour drive from here, uh, is had some bad times earlier this year where my understanding is they were on water rationing for where people couldn't use water certain hours every day. There was at one point a time where they could see sort of the end of the water of the municipal water supply. I think it was about 40 days away, something like that. Um, and so the weather's really taking a toll on the growing population of Monterey, which, like I said, is not all that far away from us here in Austin. The effects of climate change are front and center there. They're front and center here. And this such situation, as it sounds from the other panelists, really is happening everywhere and, and certainly could happen everywhere. Um, so we've got a lot of work to do. Absolutely. And I think between all four of you, you've done an impeccable job in laying out the, the sheer challenge at stake here and the multi-dimensions of that challenge. So let's start talking solutions and strategies and, and how you all are thinking about overcoming some of these challenges. So, Judge, I'm going to loop right back to you with a follow-up. You know, based on your work and your observations, what do you believe are some of the most effective mechanisms for maintaining water security, especially in these scarcer environments? Yeah, I think a big one here in Austin and Travis County, you know, I've always thought of this as a pretty wet place where it rains a lot. Used to joke with friends, like I went to college in Colorado. They all thought Texas was a desert and I had to convince them that Austin and Travis County and, and Houston and other parts of the state are actually quite wet and quite green. Um, but that's, you know, could be shifting here. So what we look at is the the sort of three main parts of, of how we're going to address this. So water planning, water conservation, and building supply resiliency. So on planning, the city of Austin has a 100-year integrated water resource co plan called Water Forward. And uh, Austin Water, which is our, our municipal water utility, provides water not just for city residents, but for a lot of the surrounding communities in the county who sometimes through private water suppliers buy their water from Austin Water. Um, so this plan is supposed to create a resilient and sustainable water future in the face of all these challenges posed by population growth, climate change, and, and droughts that are worse than what we've seen in the past. It does consider these and a range of water-related conditions. The city adopted that plan in 2018, and in 2024, the city is going to update that. So that's pretty soon and, frankly, couldn't come soon enough. Um, the county, Travis County, is, has hired people to study the groundwater and to see how we can address drought cycles that are happening more often. And hopefully these studies will help us cut down on the impact to, to people here in Travis County. Um, so we've implemented on, on con conservation, we've implemented strong water conservation programs and policies, and we've pr promoted water reuse to help ensure that water use efficiency is a priority. So Austin has adopted permanent conservation stage watering restrictions. So we're on a one day a week watering schedule, again, for the lawns that people in Austin uh, still like to have, I, ho hopefully transitioning away from that too. Um, I think since that once a week thing has taken place, we have been a little bit better prepared for our current drought. It also includes water reuse strategies to increase supply and use of reclaimed water which is highly treated wastewater that can be used for purposes other than drinking. And so that includes expanding Austin's. We have this thing, I think others do too, called a purple pipe system that recycles um, on-site water in big buildings, like uh, recycling the used water in a big office building to use in the cooler for the air conditioning unit, things like that. Um, the last one is to build supply resiliency. And so this plan includes 
an idea that has been used in a couple other places in Texas called the aquifer storage and recovery system. And this would store water underground in an aquifer. We have lots of underground caves and aquifers here in Texas, and it would store it for later recovery and use and provide a second source of water uh, during drought or emergencies like freezing or flooding. And so that, I think, if I remember right, it's been used in Kerrville and San Antonio and, and one other place here in Texas. But the scale that we're looking at it here in Austin and Travis County would be massive. Um, but we're not we're not there yet. Thank you. No, thank you. And uh, you say we're not there yet, but you're clearly already doing and, and working on and testing out a lot. So it, it's very exciting to hear all the different avenues that you all are piloting. Um, and, and so, Ashley, I, I want to turn to you. Um, so also sort of more at a local municipal level through through a government um, perspective, you, know, you you really did a great job, Ashley, of I think outlining the, the many types um, of water challenges that, that Reno faces. Can you tell us uh, what policies the city of Reno um, and, and your mayor uh, is instituting to really ensure that residents have enough water to thrive? Because it feels like we've gone from a situation of um, enough. How do we get enough water in, in some of these cases, which is, which is scary to think about? So, so I'll turn it to you. Thanks, Aubrey. And uh, Judge Brown actually kind of set the stage for a lot of our initiatives, so I'm happy to launch on from some of those. Uh, we had a very significant water situation uh, in 2017. We had a very massive flood that hit our region. And Mayor Sheevey recognized that we are in this constant feast or famine from a water standpoint, and we had to figure out a better way in order to mitigate this damage that was coming through. And this initially started as a test program because we did have that significant water event, as I mentioned, and a flood. And so we created a program in which we piped out that water into an outlying area and utilized that effluent water that was non-treated at that time for agricultural use. Uh, within that, we came back a few years later and through regional efforts have actually just launched this spring something that's known as Nevada's Advanced Purified Water Demonstration Project. Uh, it's a very long way to say that it's a regional effort in which we take our wastewater, which is, as I mentioned, part of our water solution, and typically it was treated and then put back into our water system, which is our Truckee River, um, at a level in which was safe. However, we have now upped that process and transitioned the treatment of this water into Category A+, which is the highest level of water from a federal security standpoint that you can create and that is re-injected into our ground water and then held in aquifers for later service and recovery, as Judge Brown was mentioning. Uh, this is something that is really going to be an incredible opportunity for our residents to ensure that we are creating some drought-proof opportunities for them and ensure that we have that sustainable water supply going forward. It's something that in the past, it has been something that we've just had to manage the events as they come and we're completely reactive. This allows us as a government to be a bit more proactive uh, and really shows that working regionally is something that's necessary. Additionally, one of the other initiatives that Mayor Sheedy has been a large supporter of, we had a, an overhaul to our zoning and land use code recently. And within that, it changes the traditional standards of everyone has a lawn and parkway systems have full irrigation and really promoting the opportunity for native drought resistant um, agriculture to come in 
helps with from an aesthetic standpoint, but really manages that expectation of that water. So we fortunately have never been pushed into a place of necessary and required conservation. Thank you so much for sharing uh, those solutions as well. The reuse challenge um, and an opportunity that exists. Um, it, it's really good to hear that that's being thought of from multiple perspectives here. Um, Kate, I'm going to turn back to you now. You noted how um, Groundwork USA really focuses most of its efforts on historically marginalized communities where I understand um, the, the complementary water security challenges of flooding and, and heat islands and, you know, heat stress, especially in urban areas, are extremely prevalent. Um, and I'm wondering if you can explain to us here today from Groundwork USA's perspective and the work that you do, how these seemingly disparate topics are connected, especially in the context of historically marginalized communities in the United States. Sure. The um, what we hear mostly from residents is a concern about flooding because that's something that's incredibly immediate. Your basement gets flooded, all your stuff gets destroyed. It's really expensive and, and can be really scary for communities. But one of the things that we don't talk a ton about, I think, is around the urban heat island effect and how damaging heat can be. Uh, heat is actually the biggest killer if you were to combine all of the climate effects. So everything from you know hurricanes to blizzards to floods and put them all together, that doesn't compare at all to how many lives we lose from heat. And it doesn't even have to be that extreme. Uh, you see a number of the things that you're disappointed to see, things like increased maternal mortality, heart attack risk, things like that, uh, increase starting at about 75 degrees across the country. So it doesn't even need to be that extreme. And one of the challenges that we face in our cities is the urban heat island effect, which is effectively the sun's radiation hits blacktop. So parking lots, driveways, roads, rooftops, and that blacktop stores that energy and emits it out throughout the day and night. Areas that have more asphalt, have more parking lots, more streets, maybe are adjacent to highways, um, which traditionally are lower income neighborhoods, neighborhoods of color, um, that stores the heat and then radiates it out throughout the day and night. So those communities never really get a chance to cool down. Um, and research that's been done shows that those neighborhoods that, again, are disproportionately low income and communities of color, they can be about five degrees uh, hotter on average than whiter, wealthier neighborhoods. But that can be as extreme as 25 degrees Fahrenheit, the difference. So, you know, that's the difference between turning your air conditioner on and not. That's the difference between a utility bill that you can afford at the end of July and one that's going to cause you to make some serious cuts. And one of the things I think it's important to note is that our neighborhoods don't look like this by accident. Um, over a series of 100 plus years, we've made decisions about where to site things like highways and industry. Um, and a lot of that has come down through our zoning code, which has uh, put a lot of asphalt and a lot of pavement in, in certain neighborhoods. So those neighborhoods are going to be hotter than others. Um, one other thing to note is in these spaces, there's also a pretty big lack of trees. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, if you've got a big parking lot, it's kind of hard to you know shove an American elm tree in there. Uh, another reason is that we've seen actually since the Great Recession a huge loss in tree canopy cover across almost all of our cities. Um, during the Great Recession, municipalities were really strapped for cash and had to cut their budgets. And on the urban forestry side, pretty much they just maintained money to cut down trees that were going to become a public nuisance. So gosh, that's going to fall on someone's house. Let's get rid of it. Uh, and we see some cities going from tree canopy cover in the 60% range down to the teens over about a 20 year period. So that's going to um, do two things. One, make the environment hotter. And then two, lose the ability to absorb some of that rainwater, the impermeable pavement of parking lots, roads, driveways, uh, 
water doesn't have anywhere to go. So it's going to pool up and it's going to find its way to the nearest uh, low-lying area. And that is people's basements. That's the first floor of people's homes. That's depressions in roadways that keep people from being able to get to work. Uh, and so you lose the ability of that water to sink into the ground and for those trees to just really soak up that water and keep it out of the public right of way. One of the good things to note is that the urban heat island effect and flooding both have common solutions. And a lot of, you can sort of pet two cats with one hand. Uh, by planting trees, by removing pavement, by uh, reducing the urban heat island effect using natural solutions and green infrastructure, you can also start to address some of those flooding concerns. So the, if there's a silver lining to it, it's that uh, making changes to the urban heat island effect and flooding are really achievable through natural solutions. Kate, that was so helpful uh, contextually. Thank you for, for sharing that. And now, Going from the concepts of, you know, green infrastructure and, and water reuse that we, we've talked so far about, um, to maybe empowerment of communities and, and populations with a huge role to play here, Sydney, I'm going to ask you if you can explain how your organization, Mama Maji, actually works with and trains Kenyan women to create businesses surrounding water. What skills are you providing? What skills are they needing to be able to accomplish this feat? As Georgie rather, Georgie rather uh, skillfully mentioned in the beginning, water is at its foundation of women's issue. Women are the forefront of the problem, forefront of the solution, forefront of dealing with all the issues that come from it. That also gives us an, a unique opportunity to engage with them. Um, particularly, I mean, you see this globally, but it's very, very obvious in uh, more water strapped developing communities, um, how much women really have an opportunity in water specifically like it is their world. They are the ones that manage it, have to collect it. That also means that they're the experts in it. So it gives us a chance to engage with them in a different way than is traditionally allowed, depending on the roles that are in that. Um, and I will discuss that, I think, later on. But we, we really aim to work deep with these women to use this opportunity. Um, when we first come into community, we only do so at the request of the women and in partnership with them. We work with them to identify the needs and opportunities in their community and to try to understand what water and sanitation solutions will make sense given their geographic and cultural contexts. Um, as we've heard on this panel, there are a lot of similarities, but there are significant differences depending on where you are in the world and what the water table looks like, what the soil looks like, what the community looks like. Um, through this process, we actually have the opportunity to provide targeted empowerment training. So mentorship in marketing, selling, leadership, public speaking. Um, we are able to give these women a platform to speak in places they're never, they've never been allowed to have a voice before. And we work on the soft skills critical to business development, customer identification. How do you speak? How do you sell? How do you market? Um, we also provide lengthy training necessary to ensure that these women can also be water and sanitation educators, really to support the work done by any community health workers that might exist in their region to advance both to sell their products because it's solving a problem, but help advance the health of the community that is so directly impacting and affecting them. We then work with them to pilot and capitalize their business. So what does this look like? In Kisumu, where the water table and population densities are high, um, that is in Western Kenya. We worked with women to fundraise for a water tower for an existing productive borehole and then to develop expansions into water kiosks into different parts of the community. This might sound like unusual technology, but it really is the same engineering used to provide water to cities and towns across the U.S. When you're driving down the interstates, when you're driving down the freeways and highways, you can see water towers sitting in the city and it's the same thing, just a different scale. 
in Maasai land in, in southern Kenya, a borehole with the water tower is not ideal. Um, the water table and the population density is both low. It's very rural. It's very arid. So working with the women there, we identified a technology called interlocking stabilized soil blocks. It's a type of earthen architecture to build water tanks that can store water from the water truck trucks that go around in the region during the drought season and to store the rainwater during the rainy season, they serve as water cashments to retain water. Um, you could see one of those in the background. I like putting up this background because it's hard to understand what we mean, but this is the women making the bricks to build this tank behind me. And with these mamas, the ones in Kajeda County, south of Nairobi, uh, we've been working with them to start a construction company that builds these. They build water tanks, pit latrines, and now buildings. With COVID, it provides both a challenge and a bit of an opportunity. We were able to fundraise for a number of relief tanks that these women built for the community. I mean, similar to every other city and country in the world, you needed water to be able to wash your hands. Um, and over the last two and a half years, they have constructed 16 of these tanks storing 320,000 liters of water for their community. Again, this is similar to things in the US. This is similar to the infrastructure, to the aquifers that Judge Brown was just talking about in Austin. It's just a much smaller scale. Some of them are underground. This one above me is above ground. They also built two pit latrines. And in the last year, they constructed a women's business center to house their work. This has kept 30 families with revenue through the pandemic. It has allowed the women to take a role of leadership in their community that is unheard of for them and brought sanitation solutions during a critical time, both for that community and globally for, for us all. Thank you so much, Sydney, and congratulations again on all that amazing work. Um, I do want to make a quick uh, point that we have just over uh, 10 minutes left in this session, so I do want to get a couple more questions in, so I'll ask everyone to keep their answers concise. Um, that being said, Sydney, since we were just on the topic and you were talking a bit about the context that these women are working in in Kenya, I do want to loop back to you um, and ask you about what are some of the challenges that you and your organization and these women that you're working with are facing as they are trying to turn this water challenge into an economic opportunity? I mean, women's empowerment is needed for a, re a reason. Um, there's a distrust, distrust in women and their ability to do things globally. It's just a question of scale. So that distrust is the biggest thing that we have to deal with. This has been an issue with investment. I have sat down with funders in the U.S. who have looked at me and said, can these women really do this? Can they really pick this stuff up? These women build gardens and lift you know 40 uh 40 liter jerry cans they don't tell me they can't pick up a bag of cement this also comes to the men in the community themselves this is why we actually work with women first and foremost in introductions to the community i remember one of the first times i learned this lesson i was working with a male partner who seemed very feminist and he full stop flat face told me one day oh women can't be trusted with money cool uh, awesome. Great to know where we stand. And this shows up in systems. So these women are running a very, like they built a ton of tanks in the last three years. It took us seven months to get them a bank account because the bank refused to think that they could manage the money themselves. And they try to cancel it three different times now. But again, going back to that opportunity wasn't mean to get a bank account, though. These women actually, and Aubrey, this is a new thing. They were actually able, so there's an issue with a famine now in the area because of a drought. And these women, because they have a business with a bank account, and now the location that they built in the last year, were able to apply for government food aid for their community that they couldn't access. They were actually able to distribute food aid 
for their community because they had this, but then the bank keeps trying to close their account because it says that the women can't be trusted to manage the money. So, and that doesn't even touch on the gender-based violence issue, um, which I know I've touched on and can rant on a lot. I can rant on a lot about these things because there's so many things, there's so much opportunity for these women to engage because they know the problems, they're empowered to see them done both for themselves and their families, but they're not given the ability, they're not given the trust, they're not given the investment, and they're not given a chance. So I can yeah. keep going on, but I'll stop there. I appreciate that, just given the amount of time that we mm -hmm. have, but um, always appreciate your contributions and your help raising awareness of these topics. And so going now from, I think, the question of challenges faced in, in a specific context, um, in this case in, in Kenya and other communities in which Mama Manji has worked, to, to reverting back here to the United States, Ashley, I want to turn to you and ask, what major obstacles does Reno face in ensuring water security for whether it be the city or even the region writ large? As I mentioned, Reno being a boom town and the increase in population, with that comes the increase in sewer capacity and the sewer and wastewater needs. Sewer treatment is very expensive and governments do not have the resources in order to manage this population and physical infrastructure taxing at a rate in which it is happening. Uh, governments tend to be a bit reactive, and so by the time that we're aware that there's a problem, the problem has already left us behind. As I mentioned, that major water event that we had in 2017 that caused us to really look at how we're managing our water systems, we just launched this initiative in the spring of 22. So it took us five years, granted a pandemic in the middle, but to show you how reactive and slow governments can be, uh, that's something that we are now trying to shift and find other options. Uh, we've started treating our wastewater, and when I say started, I mean in the last month, uh, utilizing UV technology instead of chemical treatment. Uh, cost of chemical treatment has gone up threefold since the pandemic. So we're excited about those initiatives, but the ongoing cost of just managing that is something that we have yet to figure out how to expand these plants that are built in the 80s and have not had a lot of significant updates since then. That makes a lot of sense uh, for sure. And I'm also thinking in the context of this conversation, um, all the different uses that water has, right? I mean, Sydney, you mentioned to wash your hands in the midst of COVID or just daily life. And earlier in the conversation, um, Ashley and and uh, and ju the judge, you, you both mentioned industrial uses as well and, and watering lawns, everything in between. Um, judge, I'm wondering if you could mention or, or note for us, when I think of Texas, I think of key industries such as agriculture and ranching that are both very much... Um, I say I don't want to call them water sinks, but they they require a lot of water. So, how how do you work with key industries like these to address this this water challenge? Yeah, it's complicated in Texas, and we've got this weird law here. I don't know how many other states have it. It's been too long since law school, but it's called the rule of capture, where if I have a piece of land, I'm allowed to put a straw down into the water table, into the aquifer and pull as much water out as I want, even if it's pulling water from the aquifer under my neighbor's land, which is frankly something that we need to change in Texas because water is, is not unlimited. Um, we've also got complicated industries like rice farmers. So for a long time, there are rice farmers sort of downwater from or downstream from Austin, from our, our big river here. 
And in the past, they would flood crops using our drinking water in effect because it would come out of the same lakes to, to flood the, the land to grow rice, which sounds kind of bonkers that why would you grow rice in a, in a state that is not water, doesn't have a ton of water. The land there in, for these farmers that they're using is kind of sandy. And their argument is that you can't really grow a lot of other crops on it besides rice. And so you've got this balance between the big, big area, metropolitan area of Austin needing the same water to drink. You've also got the, the rice farmers that are downstream, that that's how they make their living and they provide rice and and things like that. So it's it's a balance. It's a tough balance. But I do think some of the sort of antiquated laws of the state, like the rule of capture, are, are going to have to change if this drought continues. And it certainly seems like it's going to. Um, that I think that's probably the, it, it's it's a balance. It's a tough one because. You know, 20 years ago, I, Texas was a very different environment for being able to water your your cows and your rice as much as you want. It's it's not that same environment today. So I think we're going to have to make some adjustments or start conserving a lot more if we're going to continue to support both those agriculture industries and the municipal water supply. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to take change and there's kind of no no way around that. And, and speaking of change, Kate, um, it's time for me to turn back to you because uh, what really interested me about this conversation today in part was having um, some, you know, local government leaders here in a conversation with someone like you, Kate, who runs an organization that really um, works to help community members find ways to collaborate with their local governments to accomplish goals, including related to water security. So can you talk a little bit about your process for helping to bridge that divide between community members and their governments? Absolutely. In the communities that we work in, there's usually a pretty deep mistrust of government. Uh, when we start relationships with residents, they'll say, why would I work with you on climate issues? We know you're reliable, but we've been trying to get this stop sign for 10 years. We've been trying to get this other issue dealt with for a certain period of time and have been blown off and, and are not interested in engaging. And part of what we do is when we work with residents and local governments is we spend a lot of time trying to understand why our communities look the way that they do. If you don't have an understanding of the policy, the history, the law, the cultural changes that have caused a community to look the way they do, it's really hard to, to reconcile that and to look forward to change. Then we work closely with residents to help prioritize the types of changes that they would like to see and build their capacity to understand systems. So for the average person, understanding how a county government works or a municipal government works is, is really not intuitive. It can be a really confusing process to understand who's in charge of stormwater versus who's in charge of the urban tree canopy versus who's in charge of that stop sign you still want. Um, and so we spend a lot of time helping to build that capacity so residents understand how to intervene and participate in the systems. Um, and then finally, one of the things that we use to bring people together, both residents and local government officials, is the use of geospatial uh, data as part of a data-informed process that matches the lived experience of residents and their priorities, which data that's kind of hard to refute. Why is it that the northern part of Elizabeth that's mostly um, Hispanic has the lowest tree canopy cover in the city? Um, why is it that neighborhoods that were historically redlined have so much more pavement and flooding and heat than other neighborhoods? And we, one of the things I really appreciate about using these geospatial databases is that they serve as this neutral platform for having conversations about equity. 
everybody. It's not your ancestors versus my ancestors. It's not your decisions versus my decisions. It's we live in a common city and there's a difference here that we need to help bridge. Um, and that's something that, that's really helpful. Uh, and so while it looks really different from city to city in Rhode Island, we focused on changing the way that the city distributed their trees to use an equity-based model um, from, for example, San Diego, where we were able to push for the Choyos Creek watershed to be designated as municipal infrastructure so it can receive federal and state funding. Uh, we've, the solutions look really different in, in, in all these different places, but it always follows that three-pronged process of why do our communities look the way that they do? How does the system function? And then how do we pull together the right stakeholders to bridge that divide? Thanks, Kate. And that leads me, I think, to our final question of the day, which I'm going to turn back um, to to D Judge Brown um, to kind of look at this from the other angle. So we, we talked from local populations working with governments, and now I want to talk local governments working with the populations here. How does Travis County leverage or work with its local populations to ensure water security? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, right now, what we're doing is sort of outreach about this concept of storing water and storing it in aquifers. And I think it's it's extremely important to Austin and Travis County. We have a very involved community, so they like to be sort of hands on on what it is that we're doing. Um, and I think the local government, the county level, the city level actually do a really good job of that. One of the challenges, though, is that water is also regulated by a state entity. So we, we have a, a Colorado River here. It's not the same one that goes to California, obviously. But the Lower Colorado River or Association or whatever it's called, um, the LCRA, they get to decide the water policy. So they they off they can say, do the rice farmers get priority over the city of Austin and make big decisions like that? They can make decisions of does the city of Pflugerville get to put a pipe into the Highland Lakes to fill up a lake in Pflugerville? And so I think you know the the state, which is a to be blunt, a very re Republican state versus the city and the county, which are more Democrat run, don't always see eye to eye. And, and I think the water policy issue is a place where there's a lot of conflicts around that. Um, and so we're working to try to get more transparency to what the LCRA does. And at the same time, uh, you know, trying to make these balances that I talked about of, of having industrial uses, agricultural uses work along with um, our, our people uses. And I think the the thing the thing that Kate said really troubled me a lot. Just that the the canopy of trees was reducing over COVID. I didn't realize we had like another thing that COVID brought on. But Austin has and Texas as a whole has never been really forward thinking in terms of like rooftop gardens, things like that to save water. And it's shifted so much that I think our population, at least locally, is ready to start making those changes. I'm not sure that the state is there yet, but that's you know that's politics, I guess. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.